If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hi, everybody. I'm Zael Mednik, and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. The situation in Israel and Palestine escalated in recent weeks, but in truth, it's a conflict that has been going on for many decades. To say that it is a complicated issue is a massive understatement. The next two episodes of the podcast look back on the history of Israel and Palestine with the goal of providing context for the present situation. The goal of these conversations was not to try and take sides or suggest resolutions. There are enough opinions in the news and on social media. But as with all episodes of Preconceived, the purpose was to challenge the way we view something and perhaps look at it in a light we hadn't previously considered. And in this case, I think the best way to do that is by trying to understand, as best as possible, the complicated history that has led up to this moment. I am joined on the podcast by Yoav Biller, a Jewish-Israeli educator and licensed tour guide. When I traveled to Israel a few years ago, I had the privilege of being guided by Yoav. At the time, I was impressed by his open-mindedness to a multitude of perspectives of the conflict and his ability to articulate the root issues of a complicated topic, while at the same time not oversimplifying things. In this first episode, I will share with you the first half of our conversation, which covers the history of Israel and Palestine from the ancient times up until the Six-Day War in 1967. The second episode will pick up from there and conclude in present day. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Yoav Biller. Yoav, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Sayel. Well, I'm really excited for you to join the podcast and chat about this. A lot of the topics, pretty much all the topics we do, as you could guess, the title is called Preconceived for the podcast, is trying to break down different issues that many people might view in one way, but with a deeper exploration can be viewed in a different way. And I think that what's been going on in Israel right now has obviously been a very sad situation and there's been a war going on for a long time, but especially over the last month, things have resurged, so to speak. And it's one of those things that a lot of people in the world have opinions on, but often those opinions are less educated than they could be. And people might look at it more black and white than, than they should. So I'm hoping over these next couple of episodes with you to be able to learn a little bit more about the history of Israel and Palestine and some of the context that has led to the situation that that has arisen today. So you know, I'm going to I'm going to hand the reins over to you. I want to let you kind of just give the listeners some insight into how this whole conflict developed. 
All right, I'll, I'll try my best. But I, I want to start with a disclaimer. I hope you have a good, you know, glass of wine or beer <laughs> in your hand. Like First of all, hand, but... <laughs> I, I have to. First of all, my name is Yoav Biller. I'm an Israeli, I'm Jewish, I'm a male, I'm Ashkenazi male, I'm a Zionist, meaning we all have our biases. I will try to be as fair as possible and but, uh, objective as possible. But of course, we all have our biases and that's what I'll try. I'm no, I'm no expert. I am uh, an educator, if you can say. I guide a lot of educational tours in Israel and in Palestine, uh, or you can call it the Palestinian territories, you can call it Judea and Samaria, you can call it the occupied territory, you can call it the disputed territory, and I have like 10 other names, if, if that even gives you you know, a hint of, of how complicated things are. The second thing I want to say in, in my disclaimer is you can argue about practically every sentence I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. Both left-wingers and right-wingers can, can, can get pissed, which means make, maybe I'm, I'm doing something, you know, well here. My expertise is taking very, very complicated things and explain it in a simple way, meaning, you know, it always be a bit simplistic to talk about a yearly university course in 45 minutes. That's, that's the price we pay. And the other thing I want to say is very important to recognize that we're talking about narratives. We're talking about perspectives. We're also talking about facts, but mainly about how people interpret those facts uh, according to their own story, narrative, uh, perspective. That's another thing. And uh, as I said, I'm giving up certain, in, in order to be cohesive, I'm giving up some of the accuracy. So and that's one those thing. Are I, don't think, I think those are important prefaces to make. And for people who are listening to this, I, I think most of our listeners are pretty open-minded, but I, I think that's important to start with, especially with this topic. It's important for people to understand if you're coming into this looking for an argument with this topic, yeah, I'm sure everything you can say, people can pick at and say, well, that's not 100% accurately true. That's not, that's biased this way. And you're doing your best to explain a very, very challenging topic. And you're somebody that I've listened to and that I respect. And I wouldn't have brought you on the podcast if I didn't respect the way that you go about these things and your open-mindedness towards the issues. So I'm hoping, and I'm quite sure that the listeners will will enjoy listening to you speak if they look at it through an open-minded lens. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I do hope that people will feel more educated after I'm not here to convince I'm not here on an advocacy uh, mission, nor do I uh, want to convince someone who's right and who's wrong. Merely, I, I, I would like to offer, uh, you know, a different perspective, a more dual or multi-narrative perspective and, and 
maybe to try and educate a bit about the subject. But enough with the chit chat. Let's go back thousands of years ago and, and start where it all began. If you would go today to Jerusalem, you will see a gorgeous golden dome. You can call it Dome of the Rock. We'll talk about the rock that is inside. Jews will call it the Temple Mount. Arabs can call it Haram Sharif or Kubat As-Sahara. But merely if you'll go into that mosque, into that golden mosque, inside, you will see a huge white rock, a big limestone rock. And this is where our story began, and it still is happening. Now, from the Jewish perspective, this white rock is the rock where Abraham, the first monotheist, the first person to ever believe in one God, bind his son Isaac, um, was willing to sacrifice his own son Isaac because the God that only one person believes in at this point uh, asked him to do so. At the end, the angel rescued Isaac. You, you, he found the sacrificial lamb. But this is the ground zero of Judaism, if you're coming from the Jewish perspective. Jews are so obsessed with this right rock, they call it the foundation stone. They believe the entire universe was created from one single rock. It's God's rock. It has God's presence. It is energetic. It, it, it combines the upper world from the, you know, from the lower world. This is where Cain murdered evil. All in all, Jews are obsessed with this rock. Now, the first Jewish temple was built on that mountain. The name of the mountain is Mount Moriah. On top of Mount Moriah, you will see that big white rock. Okay, this is where okay. the binding of Isaac took place, let's say, let's say um, 4,000 years ago. A thousand years later, this is where King David, the most important Jewish king, he had a vision to build a palace and a temple on Jerusalem. He will build a palace, but he will not build a temple, but his son, Solomon, will build the first Jewish temple exactly where Mount Moriah is. And if you go to the Holy of Holies, to the most sacred and important room in that temple, you will find the big white rock. Later on, that first temple will be destroyed. Jews will, ex will exile to Babylon, but Jews will later on come back and will build a second temple, exactly where the first one was. And again, if you go to the Holy of Holies, when only the high priest could go, and only one, year, one day a year, Yom Kippur Day, you will find the big white rock. It is God's rock. It's the most important. All Jews had to go to that temple three times a year on the high holidays of Sukkot, Passover and Shavuot. At 70 AD, the Romans will destroy the second Jewish temple. Ever since then, you don't have a Jewish temple over there, yet the White Rock is there. Now, Jerusalem is super holy also for Christians. I will, I'm going to mention it even though it's, it's less you know, related to our conflict, but when the temple was still around, Jesus, Joshua, came to Jerusalem. He did his miracles in Jerusalem. His last seven holy days happened in Jerusalem. And he was crucified, executed, and then resurrected, not, you know, a few hundred meters from that white rock. And after 40 days, he had a big, magnificent, you know, I had a dream kind of speech on Mount of Olives. And he ascended to heaven only to come back at the end of days for the, for the second advent. This is why... Two and a half billion people, Christians over the world, they have their obsession with Jerusalem, and now we understand why. And of course, I'm, I'm making it very simple. But you're giving an explanation as to why <laughs> this place is so important. And I'm sure uh, going to give the other perspective too, but it, it's a very important landmark for people around the world from, from all three monotheistic religions. 
it's a great privilege to walk and guide and, and, and teach in Jerusalem because everything is tangible. You could touch, you could see where la the last supper happened according to, to faith. Again, I'm talking about narrative and perspective, not about archaeologists and scientists. And you, can you, you can touch where you know, the crucifixion took place, where the temple stood, where everything happened. And then I'm fast forwarding 600 years the third monotheistic religion erupted in the deserts of what is now Saudi Arabia. And the last monotheistic prophet, Muhammad, is rising. And, and Islam is already happening, but there is, a, there is a thing. They don't know how many, you know, how many prayers a day should, should they pray and how exactly that, did the, does the prayer had to, had to work. And then if you open the Quran, the holy book for Islam, and, and even more, the, the Hadith, the oral texts, uh, which are now sacred and holy as well, you will read about a, a fascinating night journey, Muhammad flying on his magnificent creature, El Burak, with Angel Gabriel on his side, all the way from Mecca, which is now Saudi Arabia, to El Aqsa, which is believed to be in Jerusalem. He will land in Jerusalem, he will tie his, his El Burak, his creature, he will go on that white rock. I remind you, the temple are long, the Jewish temple is long, Destroyed. What year is We're talking this? about uh, seven seventh century A.D. Okay, so the temple's been destroyed for about six hundred. The temple, years. yeah, the temple is no is no is nowhere to be found for the last six hundred years, and then Muhammad will ascend to heaven in one of the coolest story in Islam, which you know I'm 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 not going into, but after he will cross seven floors with the seven holy VIPs of humanity: Adam, Jesus, uh, Abraham, Joseph, Elijah, Moses, so on. He will meet Allah in person, God in person. And after a brutal Middle Eastern negotiation, he will get the number of prayers, five prayers. Ever since then, Muslims will pray five times a day. And that will be the time that Muhammad will pray for the first time towards Mecca with angel Gabriel on one side, and very important with Abraham, his forefather on the other side. Now, very important to know, Abraham is the forefather of both Jews and Muslims. Abraham had two sons, Isaac, which is the forefather of Judaism, and uh, Ismail, Ishmael, which is the forefather of, of Islam. That's what I'm going to say about the White Rock, which is today in Al-Aqsa Mosque or Al-Aqsa Compound, Dome of the Rock, Temple Mount, whatever you want to call it. For Jews, that White Rock is the holiest spot. For Muslims, that White Rock is the third holiest spot after Mecca and Medina, another city in Saudi Arabia. And you cannot really divide a rock. You know, it's, it, everybody are obsessed with this right rock. Now I'm gonna fast forward, you know, a few hundred years. Again, we're still talking about some ancient, ancient time. The crusader, Christians coming from Western Europe, conquering the land, the Holy Land, back from the Muslims. And the first thing they'll do after massacring, you know, Jews and Muslims and other Christians, they will turn the mosque that mosque, Dome of the Rock Mosque, into a church. And that is a huge trauma in the Islamic narrative. That is really a huge trauma. And later on, when Salah ad-Din, the great Muslim conqueror, the, the great Muslim leader, will beat the crusader on the battlefield and will kick them back to Europe, one of the first things he will do, of course, he will turn that church back into a mosque, but he will do one more thing. He, he has a feel of the demographic in Jerusalem. At that time, Jerusalem 
the majority of, of people living in Jerusalem are Christians, not your blue-eyed, blonde, Western European Christian, but nevertheless Christian. And that's, that's a big problem for Salah Hadin, and he will do a few things, but one of the things that he will do, and later on his successors will do, they will bring different ethnicities from all over the Arab Peninsula, what we call today the Middle East, and from North Africa, and even from Afghanistan, Pakistan. And the agenda is to change the demography, to make sure the Crusades, the Crusaders are not coming back. And he will even build a bunch of holy sites on the coastline of, of West Israel just to make sure that people will always make their pilgrimage into the coastline, but also be observers that, you know, Crusaders, the ships of the Crusader will never come back from the West. So prior, prior yeah. to the Crusades then, was it mostly Arabs who were, living, who were living in Israel at this point? Jews have kind of been, they've been exiled for a while at this point. Jews were the sovereign until first century BCE, let's say 2,100 years ago. Later on, Roman took the lead and Roman will rule this region for hundreds of years. At one point, at the fourth century, the Romans will discover Jesus, and then we call them Byzantine, but it's still the same people. We call it the Byzantine period. At this point, we still have a majority of either Jews, we have a lot of pagans, and we have a lot of the now what we call now Christians, okay? Uh, and that will be the demography until, let's, let's say, the seventh century. At the seventh century AD, Muslims are conquering this region, which is now considered Israel-Palestine. The, the, the majority at this point are Christians. Jews are now, you can find them all over the world, also in Israel, but less and less in what I now call Israel-Palestine. Okay, so the demography gotcha. will be uh, Arab Christians. Muslims will rule this region. You know, you have many dynasties, Muslim dynasty that will rule the region. And slowly, slowly, the, demogra the demography started to change, but it's still majority of Christians. At 11, 12th century AD, Crusader will take it back more from the Muslim for a short period of 200 years. And in those 200 years, Salah Adin will take the lead again from them and will try his best and his successors will do even more in order to change the demography. Ever since the 13th century, we're talking about a region that uh, the majority of that region is Muslims, gotcha. okay? And, ev and ever since, let's say, ever since the seventh century AD and until the 20th century, it's a Muslim, Arab-speaking or Arab culture region. You have like a hundred something year of Crusader in between, but Crusader were never the majority. I, I, I talked about Crusader. I know it's, it makes it, every, it everything more complicated, but I talk about Crusaders because in a way, if you, the, the DNA of the Arab slash Palestinian that are living today inside Israel slash Palestine, in their DNA, they know that they need to, def their, 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 their goal is to defend the holy site in Israel slash Palestine, mainly in Hebron, another holy city, and in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if those Palestinians came here a hundred years ago or they've been here since, you know, thousands of years or hundreds of years. But all in all, in the collective DNA or in the collective narrative, as I uh, say, that's their main goal. If you talk today to a Palestinian on the street and you ask that Palestinian, tell me, what is the difference between you and a Jordanian, a Lebanese, Syrian, Egyptian, Iraqi? He said, he will tell you, I am the guardian of 
Al-Quds, Al-Quds, the Holy One, Jerusalem. That is it's so strong in the narrative. That's why I even stopped and talked about Crusade. Now I'm, I'm fast forwarding to the 19th and 20th century. At the, at the end of the 19th century, you have changes throughout Europe. Nationalism is on the rise. You, people in Hungary want to, to be Hungarian. In Hungary, people in Poland want to be Polish. And as part of that, you have Jews in Europe. And they say it's about time we will go back to our ancient forefather land. The name of that ancient land is Zion. That's why they call themselves Zionists. Now today, many people will use that term in many, many different ways. But when I say Zionism or Zionists, I want to I wanna explain. If you believe the Jews used to have a homeland in that biblical land, in the forefather land, which they call Zion, and if you believe Jews should have a homeland today in, in that land, that makes you a Zionist. You can be a left-winger Zionist, believe that also Palestinians should have a state here. You could be a right-winger Zionist, believe that only Jews should live here. But all in all, if you believe that Jews were here back in the days and they're allowed to have their own land back, that makes you a Zionist for the sake of that argument. So some Jews will come at the end of the 19th century and they will start settled communities in the land of what is now Israel-Palestine, okay? At that point, the Turks, or the Ottomans, the Turks from Turkey are, living, are, are ruling the entire Middle East, including that piece of land. And Jews will come, but and believe it or not, at the, at the beginning, it's actually not too bad for business. You know, Jews are, are bringing European knowledge and European money, and they're coming and they don't even talk about building a state and a sovereignty and an army. They just want to live in the land of their forefathers. You have some issues, but all in all, it's quite okay. When you say the, when you say you have some issues at that point, what do you mean by that? Was there were they displacing people? As that's that's a loaded word, displacing. But was there conflict about why are Jews coming here right now? There, there's not enough space for them, or is that not uh, no, right no, this time? No, at the end of the 19th century, the land is I cannot say empty. Between 300 to 500 thousand people lived in that land that I now call Israel and Palestine, but all in all, three to 500,000, that's nothing. It's the, it's the far end of, of a dying empire, a periphery. People really doesn't want to leave you. And, and, and when Jews are starting to come at, at 1881, 1882, some Jews even before, you have migrations from all over the Middle East, even before those Jews are coming. You had Germans coming from Germany, they were, they were Christian Germans coming, and you have... Um, Egyptians coming in the 1830s, followed by another uh, conquest. And you have Algerians and you have people that are coming from all over the Middle East and settled. And when I'm talking about issues, it's like neighbors don't get along, but, but it's not about them being Jews. There were always also Jews living in that land, not, not a majority, talking about 5%. But it's, it's, it's very natural and simple and people are not talking about it or looking at it as we are talking about it today. Gotcha. Everything starts, and that's, that's, we call it the first wave of Jewish uh, Zionist immigration. And, and Yoav, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that first wave who don't know much about the conflict and the history of Israel and Palestine, because I think a lot of people assume that the Jews really just came back after the Holocaust. So this is really important context because there were Jewish migrations to Israel, as you're explaining right now, it wasn't just after the Holocaust. This was starting, like you said, at the end of the 19th century. 
Jews came even before the 19th century. We're talking about religious Orthodox Jews that just want to wanted to live in the Holy Land. All right. Anyway, the second wave of, of, of Jewish immigration is very different. And this is where I'll, I'll really start. Because the first wave talked only about living in the land of Zion. They didn't talk nationality. But the second wave, those are socialist, almost I would say communist, socialist, radical Jews coming from Eastern Europe. They are not traditional. They are not religious. And they are talking about nationality. They're talking about Jewish sovereignty, Jewish um, parliament, Jewish state, Jewish army, and all on, and that's that's a whole different rhetoric than the first one. And all, all of this, all of a sudden, those Arabs, those in those local Arabs, I'm not calling them Palestinian just yet, and because they didn't refer themselves as Palestinian at that point, they looked at the, all those new immigrants coming, you know, so arrogant and 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 radicals and ideologues, and say, well, that's not cool anymore, you know, and. In a period of 30 years, you would see the, the rising of what I can now call Palestinian nationalism, almost as a mirror reflection of the, of the Jewish Zionist nationalism. It's really almost as a mirror reflection. And this is now is starting to be a national issue, an issue between two nationalities, two ethnicities. I, I, and I want to point out one more thing. Many people look at Jews in the world and say, that's a religion. Why should a religion have a, 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 a land, a state? Jews are not considered, considering themselves only as a religion, but also as a, a peoplehood, nationality, ethnicism, meaning Jews from Ukraine, Algeria, China, or Canada. You can be a secular Jew, but you're still part of the tribe. You're still part of the peoplehood. And that's how Jews look at themselves as a nationality. Okay, that's super important thing to say. So I'm back, back to the early 20th centuries. Jews are coming in the second wave, and that's, that's less pleasant for the Arabs. And Arabs are starting their nationalism and they will even establish a, a newspaper called Palestine. And, and all, all of a sudden, you see two national movements, one against the other. But th still are things, things are still quite, you know, okay until 1917, when the British mandate, the British Empire is taking over the entire Middle East from the Ottoman Turkish Empire in the, in the end of First World War. Now, why is that so important? Because as long as the Turkish as the Turks were ruling this um, region, they're still Muslims. They're not Arabs, but they're still Muslims. Everything is quite okay. But in 1917, for the first time in over three, 700 years, the Europeans are back. And those Europeans are considered by, by many as the new crusaders. And the Brits and the French are opening, even throughout the war, the Brits and the French are doing something crazy. They're opening the map of the Middle East, even before they conquer the Middle East, and they divide the Middle East according to their own interests. And the first thing they'll do, they will offer the Arab tribes in the, in the Middle East. They said, look, you will help us against the Turks. We'll give you kingdoms. The Arabs hated those Turks. They so said, yeah, we'll help you. That, that happened in 1915. At 1917, they will try to get the, 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 the help of the Jewry around the world. And they will say to the Jews, look, we will, we will declare that you are entitled to your homeland. We call it the Balfour Declaration. That's a huge, huge topic. Because for Jews, 
you know, the, the, the strongest empire is, is, uh, is for the first time in 2000 years, trying to support the Jewish sovereignty of some kind. We don't even talk, talk about the state anymore. What Jews and Arabs did, and so Jews say, of course we'll help you. Of, of course, not the Jews in, in Israel, Palestine, that's nothing, but the Jewry around the world, that was the main agenda. But what Jews and Arabs didn't know uh, that back in, back in the cool offices, Brits and French are dividing the map of the Middle East in what we call the Sykes-Picot Agreement, according to their own interests. And then they won, and it's payback times. Arabs are saying, hey, give us, you know, bring, pay us what you owe us. Jews are saying, hey, you, you, you promised us a, a homeland. But of course, Brits and, and French had their own agendas and they divided the Middle East. I'm not talking about all the Middle East. I will say, I, I will talk about the region, which is now Palestine and Israel. That was part of the British mandate. At that point, you have 10% Jews and 90% non-Jews, mostly Muslims, but many Christians as well, and other minorities as well. But according to the Balfour Declaration, Jews are the only one that their political rights are being recognized. If you can go and read the Balfour Declaration, they talk a lot about the other rights, the cultural rights and, and religion, religious rights of, of other minorities, but the political rights, that goes only with Jews. Great celebration on the Jewish part, but this is an outrage on, on the Arab slash Palestinian part. How can country A can, can, can decide with country B to divide, you know, region C, they don't, which they didn't even conquer yet and, and give it to a 10% of the people. It's an outrage. And why did they, why did they do that, Yov? Was it because of the Jewish influence in, in Britain that they decided we're going to give this give these rights to the jews why did they decide to so disproportionately allocate that that's a million dollar questions but you have many many reasons but all in all the people that led the uk at that time they're 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 christians and they're devoted many of them are devoted christians they truly believe that it's about time jews would go back to the promised land to the holy to the land that was theirs but you know so yes People that were ruling in, in Britain at the time, many of them are Christians and in favor of the Zionist movement. Some are anti-Semitic. They just want to say they, they're both devoted Christians and a bit anti-Semitic, meaning they, they believe that Jews should go back to their homeland. And that's even better if Jews will leave all the, all the regions. And if they, if they, they'll leave Europe in order to, to get away. So they're giving them a spot. For sure, for sure. And, but, and also the Zionist movement is very effective. Theodor Herzl, the visionary or the leader of, of what we call political Zionism, Heim Weizmann, very strong player, the Rothschild families, those are doing very good advocacy and they're, they're playing their role very, you know, very good. And, and more and more Jews are coming and more and more Jews are coming. They settle more and more communities. And, you know, and actually it's, it's good. The land is starting to look more, I would say, Western or more European, and if you look at it from a, from a European glasses or perspective, wow, it's 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 great. And if you look at it, about it from Jews from from Jews from Jewish perspective, we are doing the impossible here. We are the ancient uh, refugee problem in the world, and the only one that is managing against all odds to complete a circle and come back. Not as not not as a strong 
you know, army. We're not conquering anything. We are still a minority, a weak minority that is, you know, that needs the help of the Brits and that needs the cooperation of the majority of Arabs that are living here, but we are managing to come back. It's unheard of. Now, in the 20s and 30s, it's already the conflict starts. At 1920, it's the first time that we count. You have riots or, or violence based on nationality between Jews and Arabs. At, at, at that point, the Brits are, are, are ruling the land and they're trying to satisfy all sides. So they stop Jewish immigration. But Jews say, hey, you promised us Jewish immigration at, at, at the Balfour Declaration and later on at, at, at San Remo Convention in 1921, you again, you, you, you made sure uh, to offer us a, a homeland, a national uh, homeland and part of, not in the entire land that you promised us in 1917, because at, back in the day, you promised us both Western Israel, which is now Israel and Palestine, and Transjordan, which is now the Jordanian Kingdom. At 1921, you only offer us, offer us a bit. That was a major blow for the Jewish movement, but still you, you, you made sure that we will get ours. So Jews are demonstrating British, the British uh, Empire is, is letting Jews once more to go, you know, to immigrate to that land. And then Arabs are, are furious and you have one more round of violence and another round of violence and then another round of violence throughout the 20s and 30s. At that point, no one is still being kicked by force, okay? But you do have Jews that are buying land in what is now Israel, Palestine. They're buying the land from, you know, oligarchs, from tycoons that mainly are living in Turkey, in Lebanon, but some are living in, in, in that region. They're buying that land and then they're going to the farmers that, you know, the Arab farmers that are living there for some time for one generation and sometimes for many, many generations and say, hey, look at the papers. It's now, it, it's our land, you need to live. We will compensate you. It's all fair and square, but it's still, you can understand that the, the Arab farmer that is living in that land for generation is not happy. And it, and, wasn't him, the Arab far, and it wasn't the Arab farmer who was saying, I want to sell this land to you. It was the Jews going to a third party, basically, and saying, we'd like to buy this land, and then kind of going to the Arab and saying, look at our papers. Part, part of the problem is, I, that's... that's going way into, you know, into too many details, but part of the problem is that most of what is now Israel, at that point, well, all the land was belonged to few super, super rich families. Mm. Most of the farmers were not the landlords. They uh, leased the land for generation, but they were not the landlord. And when they had the opportunity to actually purchase the land in, in, in the 19th century, in the some, some even in the 18th century, but mainly in the 19th century, in the 20th century, most of them didn't purchase the land. The people that purchased the land are rich Arab families from Lebanon, from Turkey, from Beirut, and from also from Israel-Palestine. Okay? Yes. So, but that makes it very easy for those Zionist Jews. They, doesn't, they don't need to go to each and every farmer and buy the land. They can go to the landlord and, and buy big portions of land. Again, big portion. Even at the, at the end of the 1930s, Jews never managed to buy more than 7%, if I'm not mistaken. Most of it was still belonged to others, to the church, to rich, to rich fam families and so on. But violence is growing stronger and stronger and stronger and everything will change. Once the Second World War will end, 
the, the European superpowers will collapse. They cannot hold their colonies anymore. I remind you, Jews are not the sovereign and Arabs are not the sovereign. The Brits, the British Empire is the sovereign in that region. They cannot hold their colonies anymore, nor does French. That's how Syria gets its independence. That's how Lebanon will get its independence. And that's how Jordan, Iraq, and all the Middle East, all those Western-made artificial countries, if, you, if some will say, getting the independence because the, the European superpower collapsing. And then also you have the Holocaust, which you mentioned before. Before, even before the Holocaust, I mentioned you have 400,000 Jews that are already living in that region. Jerusalem is, since the 19th century, is already a majority Jewish city, even from the 19th century. And at the end of the Second World War, you know, you need to do something with it. The Brits will still try to hold the mandate. They will still try to govern that land, but there is more and more pressure from the Jewish side, from the Arab side, violence. You know, you are, every day you have rounds of violence between Arabs and Jews and between Arabs and Brits and between Jews and Brits, and it's a chaos. And in 1947, the UN, this new organization, will come to the British mandates, to the, to, to the UK, say, look, clearly you cannot govern, you cannot control this mess anymore. It's about time to, to come with a two-state solution. The first partition plan or the first two-state solution actually happened even in 1937. At this point, Jews would get 15% of the land, Arabs would get 85% of the land. That is a bad deal for Jews. Luckily for Jews, Arab rejected that plan and the Arab revolt against the Brits started the next day. But the second and most important to our, to, to our argument is the 1947 partition plan. Now, according, at that point, you have 600,000 Jews living in that land and million point two Arabs living in that land. I'm not calling them Palestinian because the name of the land is Palestine, meaning at that point, Jews refer themselves as Palestinian Jews, Christian as Palestinian Christian, Arabs, uh, Muslim, sorry, as Palestinian uh, Muslim. We were all Palestinian, right? But then the partition plan goes, and this here you, you need to hear me out. Jews will get 55% of that land. I remind you, there are one third of the people. Jews will get 55% of the land, but there are a few catch. In the Jewish future land, you will have a, a 45% hostile Arab minority. It has a strategic disadvantage. You cannot really defend that future Jewish state. Uh, most of it is a desert or swampland, meaning it's not fertile. What can you do with a desert and swampland? You don't really have a territorial connection. It's very, very easy to divide that future Jewish state into three. And Jerusalem is not a part of that Jewish land. It's a bad, bad deal. Jews wanted way, way more. But it's, on the other hand, it's, one, it's the first time somebody is offering something after 2,000 years of, the, you know, and <laughs> of since the Second Temple was destroyed, something... The, the, Somebody's offering something, Jews are voting for it. The Jewish agency, the Jewish Zionism Council is voting for it, and they're actually voting to go for it. Anyway, the Arabs, at the end, I, I cannot say they voted for it because there's not even one Arab or Palestinian leadership, but all in all, the Arab leaders rejected that, that offer, saying, you just came back at the 19th century, now you want to divide that house into two? No way, Jose. We, you know, it's, we, we are not compromising for the Holy Land, Israel, Palestine, 
whatever you want to call it. And the war of independence, as Jews would call it, or the Nakba, as Arabs or Palestinians would call it, start the next day. Why am I talking? At November 29, the UN is voting for that petition plan. I talked about the Jewish leadership and the Arab leadership, but all in all, nobody really cares so much about Jews and Arabs. The UN is putting it on a vote for a vote at November 29, 1947. Over two thirds of the UN is voting to accept the partition plan. The next day, a war starts. But for the first six months, it's a civil war. The Brits are still holding that land. It's Arab militias against, against Jew, uh, Jewish militias. They're all fighting against each other and also against the Brits. The, the Brits, know, knowing that they're gonna leave that land in a few months, they're just trying to stay out of harm and you know, protect their holy site and their, their people. It's a civil war between Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Arabs. That is the first six months. But at May 14, 1948, knowing that the Jews are going to, uh, knowing that the Brits are going to leave the next day, David Ben-Gurion, the leader of the Jewish agency, what is now the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion is declaring independence, independence from the Brits. The war is still, is already going on, but he declares independence knowing that now he's going he's gonna to face, or the Jews in that land are going to face an invasion from five different Arab armies that are coming to the help and rescue of their brothers, the Palestinian or the local Arabs. And that's what happened. May 15, you have an invasion from Egypt, from, from Jordan, from Lebanon, from Syria, even Iraq is sending a battalions, even though we don't have a border with Iraq. Even Yemen and Saudi Arabia are sending battalions, even though they're far, far away. And now it's a full scale war between the Jewish militias, which has now formed into the IDF, the Jewish-Israeli army, against five armies and against the local Arabs. To make a long story short, the Jews in that land, which I now call Israelis, won the war. They didn't win each and every part of that war, but they won the war. And now I want to talk about the resolution of that war, because this is where really I'm starting. So the resolution of that, of that war, first of all, Jews in that land won way more land than what was promised to them to begin with. If they were promised 55% of the original land, now they have 78% uh, of the original land. That is number one. They also gained half of Jerusalem, even more than half. They gained West Jerusalem. And one more thing, which is super, super important. I talked about before, uh, I talked about million point two Arabs that are in the land. Now, after the war, a lot, a lot of those Arabs are now displaced or refugees living in temporary housing or in refugee camps all over the Middle East, in Syria, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Jordan. And all in all, now you have, you know, it, it, it was a strong Arab majority in that land. And now the Jews are looking to the left and to the right and say, wow, it's a miracle. The land is empty. And is that because in the 1948 war, is that because Jews at this point, when they won that war, is that what displaced a lot of these people and changed their living conditions? So we're talking narratives. If you're talking to a Palestinian, each and every Palestinian was kicked by force from their homeland. If you're talking with the UN, they will say, or with, with, you know, with Jews at that time, they said, oh, they all 
fled. They fled either because they were, they, they, you know, they were afraid of the war or because the Arab leaders told them, look, evacuate now and you will come back later as victorious. That, you know, that's another, that's a very old Jewish perspective. Today we can say some were forced to leave. Some actually ran for their life, even if they were not forced. Some were convinced to leave by their Arab leadership. And some just left because the, the people that fled first were the Arab, were the local leaders. And it's like a herd with no shepherd. So some fled because of that. And of course, some were fled by force. You had, it's a war, right? But all, yeah, definitely it's a matter of perspectives or narrative. But at the end of that war, you had only 400,000 Arab that stayed, roughly 200,000 that are in what is now Jordan and roughly 200,000 in what is now Israel. The land is empty. Yeah. Almost at the same point, the Arab countries in the entire Middle East, look at, the, look at, the, at their Jewish minorities that are living in Iraq, Algeria, Egypt, Syria, Tunisia, Morocco, you name it. And they say to their Jews, hey, you guys, you now have a homeland. Get, you know, get the hell out of here. No, of course you cannot take your belongings and your bank accounts and your, I don't know, possessions. Go to your land. So all you, again, you have almost as a reflection, you have two migrate refugees movements. One of Palestinian refugees or Arab refugees out of Israel and one of Jews coming into Israel. So we're talking about 750,000 roughly Arabs that are now in refugee camps outside of Israel. And we're talking about roughly 700,000 inside that are, that are now coming into Israel. And of course, we're talking about many of the Jews that are coming are also Holocaust survivors coming from, you know, from, from Europe or from, from other places in the world. And, and, but there are a few other things that I want to I wanna talk about. Now you, you have those Arabs that stayed here, those local Arabs that stay here. Immediately, or almost immediately, David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli prime minister, gave them citizenships. He tells he tell them, look, you're part, you are now a citizen of the new Jewish democratic state of Israel. If you don't like it, you can go, you know, to one of those Arab countries. If not, you're a citizen. And I'm not saying equality at that time. They were living under a military regime or under a military control until 1966, but they had citizenship. Jews that came here were all, were all absorbed. And the Arabs got their citizenship. Now, why did Ben-Gurion gave citizenship to all those locals that just fought against him? That, that's, that's a super important topic. Because David Ben-Gurion said, look, if I'm controlling people, you know, if I want to live in a democracy, I have to give them citizenship. I, again, I'm not talking yet equality. You have other issues. But all in all, this is the one thing that is very important. And, and, and the other thing is, how come the UN never demanded or never asked the new state of Israel to allow all those refugees that are living in refugee camps all over the Middle East, how come the UN never insist? How come they didn't ask Israel or didn't demand? They did ask, but they didn't demand that Israel will absorb all the refugees, the Arab refugees back. Two main reasons. First, at the end of the war, Israel shook hands with all the Arabs that fought against them in a ceasefire agreement. And the UN looks at it and says, look, you know, those Arabs are representing the Palestinian peoplehood. If they are willing to shake hands, it's good enough for us. But the, the only 
people that didn't have any representation in those meetings, in the Rhodes Convention, the local Palestinian. You had Egyptian there, you had Lebanese, you had Jordanian, you had Syrian, but no representation for the local Arab slash Palestinian that are coming from Israel. This is one super important note. The people who have been displaced. The people, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, according to the UN, they have been represented by the Arab countries, okay? No, but not by a local leadership, which was not, not, to, not to be found over there. The other thing is, according to the UN at that time, you know, it's a kindergarten and the winner take her. Meaning Israel said yes to the partition plan. The Arabs said no. They actually started the war. They lost. Okay. So, you know, their fault. I'm, 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 again, I'm, I'm being very simplistic because the UN did govern or did establish a very important committee called the UNRWA, the UNRWA that is dealing only with Palestinian refugees. Why, why is it so important? You, you have in the UN one committee one organization that is dealing with displaced people and refugees all over the world. That's another committee. And then you have the UNRWA, which deals only with the Palestinian case. And this is even more important because this is the only group of people, according to uh, those agreements, that is entitled of passing their refugee status from generation to generation to generation. The poor Palestinian or poor Arabs that are living in refugee camps in Syria, in Lebanon, in Egypt, that are living there for over 70 years in horrible condition and are still, they were never been absorbed. They cannot really work in many, many positions. They cannot vote. They cannot do any of those. They are still living in horrible condition and they are passing the refugee status from generation to generation. Like they'd always be considered refugees until the situation was figured out. So I, I'll, I'll clear Jordan, Jordan Kingdom, at the end of the 1948 war, Jordan conquered the entire, what I, what I now call the West Bank or East, Eastern Israel or Eastern Palestine, and uh, including East Jerusalem, including all the holy sites. And Jordan is the only Arab country that is part of their annexation, illegal annexation, by the way. The UN never accepted that annexation. But according, because of the annexation, they gave citizenship. They offered citizenship to all the local Arab slash the Palestinian that were living there. So the Palestinian in Jordan are citizens. That's why Jordan till today is vast majority of Palestinian, okay? But in Syria, in Egypt, in Lebanon, they are still living in refugee camps. They are still not citizens. Why is that? You can ask, first of all, you can ask the leadership, but the two main reasons are if we will absorb those people, that means we are losing the case of ever, you know, letting them or, or giving them the right of return. If, they, if we are absorbing them and making them citizens, then what's the point of, you know, fighting Israel once, you know, back and back? Now, everybody knew they're going to be a second and third and fourth round of violence. That is one reason. The other reason is nobody likes foreigners. You know, the Egyptian looks, we have enough problems with the local Egyptian, let's say, why would I absorb so many, you know, so many Palestinians, other, other people? And, and, and I will say one more thing about Egypt, because at the end of 1948, well, if I had a map, I'll show you, Egypt managed to conquer what is now considered the Gaza Strip. Egypt never annexed the Gaza Strip. It was always a region in within Egypt. It, was, it has a special status, but it never annexed. It didn't do what, what Jordan did in the West Bank, meaning annexation of the West Bank. Egypt 
had and controlled the Gaza Strip, but never gave citizenship. They were always had, they always had, you know, a, a different status. So you're, okay. saying, you're saying it's preferable to have been, even though it was illegal, it's preferable the Jordanian situation where they were annexed compared to how Egypt treated them? In- depends, yeah. depends on who you ask. For the Palestinian, yes, definitely. For the Palestinian, they lived and still living in Jordan. You know, they lived after 48, they lived better life in, in, in let's say, in Jordan, their, their fellow Egyptian Palestinian from Gaza. But that is the end of the 19th. 48 war. David Ben-Gurion at the end, look at all the land that was conquered and say, look, everybody wants Israel to be Jewish, to be one big Jewish country and to be democratic. On the other side, the, for, for if I'm talking about a Palestinian Nakba, the Palestinian narrative, ever since then, Palestinian living in refugee camps all over, the, all, you know, in Jordan, in Egypt, in Syria, Lebanon, and they are waiting for the right of return. They are holding their keys for the land that they used to have, for the houses that they used to have in the cities that are now Israeli, in Jaffa and Haifa and Akko, in the villages. We're talking about 450 villages that are that that's no longer exist. Most of them are no longer exist, and if they exist, they exist only. If they have Jews living in what was before then Arab villages. And on the yeah. one hand, you can say, well, why didn't these other countries absorb them as proper citizens? And you explain some of the reasons why they might not have been absorbed. On the other hand, from the Palestinian perspective, you can say, listen, I want to go home. That was my, that was my land. So they, of course, ultimately, it probably would have been better for them to have been absorbed as proper citizens in other countries, as opposed to some of the situations they found themselves in. But it's also understandable that these people who said, listen, I was displaced by this war that I personally didn't start, and I just want to go back. I want to go back home. At the end of the day, we are, we're talking about two groups of people that see themselves as indigenous. Jews are looking at themselves as indigenous that were forced to leave this country thousands of years ago. And ever since then, they were wandering and suffering persecutions and, 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 and violence and Holocaust and so on, genocide and stuff. And they are entitled to go back to their homeland, meaning they have the right of return card is first and foremost a Jewish card. And then you have the Palestinian. They say, I'm indigenous to that land. This land was Arab-speaking Muslim region for over a thousand years, I'm part of that chain and I was forced to leave. It doesn't matter if I was forced by force or some will say, you know, I was, I had to flee because I have kids and I'm running away, but I was forced to leave. And even according to the UN, I'm entitled to go back. The UN never forced Israel to take back the, the refugees, but the UN did say, look, you need to solve that refugee problem. It's two groups of indigenous people, the way they see themselves, all have a justified claim for, for that piece of land and all see themselves as, you know, owners of, of, of that land. That's, that's the tragedy. And they all have a good case. The Jewish-Israeli narratives will say, look, they, we said yes to the partition plan. They said no. They started. We defended ourselves. And now they're paying the price, which is a, a, you know, this is, I talked about perspectives and narrative, but that's a fact. They said no. Yeah. So, you know, go complain to their leadership, to your poor leadership that said no and, 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 and lost the war. This is a Jewish narrative, and that's a strong case for the Jewish Zionist mainstream case. But for the local farmer, Palestine, Arab or Palestinian farmer, said, look, you know, somebody said no, and there was a war. 
you know, between five to 10,000 local Arabs took part in that war. But at the end of that war, I'm now in a refugee camp in Syria, holding the key of the house that I hold, you know, that I own for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Why should I pay the price of, you know, it's, it's okay, you won the war, but let me go back. It's complicated. We talked about those 200,000 Arabs that stayed in Israel and got citizenship just after 1948. Many of them were displayed in, within Israel, but all of them got citizenship. When we talk today about Israel being 9 million citizens, roughly 2 million of them are Arab. You can call them Israeli Arab. You can call them Arab Israel. Is the academia, you know, PC term will be Palestinian citizens of Israel. So it's very important to understand that those 2 millions are the descendants of those, you know, 1948, 200,000 Arabs that stayed. That's the last thing I wanted to say before um, jumping uh, to 1967. So 19 years gone by, not even one single day of quiet. Yeah, we had wars, we had conflict, but all in all, I'm, I'm jumping forward. Because if you remember only two dates from the whole session, it should be 48 and 67. And 1967 arrives, and with it, Fear of, like, huge fear. Egypt is talking about finish the job that they didn't do it in 48. They expelled the UN observers and they're threatening or closing the, the canals for movement of Israeli ships, which is casus belli. It's cause for war for Israel because that's our channel to the world. Syria signing uh, an alliance with, with Egypt. Jordan is talking also very aggressively, and the people here are in, in Israel, I'm talking Jewish Israelis, are in great fear. School, school kids are being sent to dig mass graves in the, in the center of towns, and everybody's afraid for a, a second Holocaust. Wow. And, and really, the, 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 it's panic in the air, it's fear in the air, and you know, remember, it's only 19 years old. It's a young, young country with the Holocaust, you know, very fresh in the memory. But I have to say the IDF, the Israeli army, is very well prepared. And on June 5th, after month and month of, 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 of anxiety, on June 5th, knowing that uh, probably the Arabs are going are gonna to strike in the next few days, the IDF is launch, launching a preemptive strike. Remember, it's preemptive strike. And they are wiping the entire, almost the entire air forces of Egypt and Syria on ground on the first three to five hours of the war. Meaning we call it the six-day war. Palestinians will call it the Naksa, the little catastrophe. But actually game was over after five hours. Israel gained air domination and it took six more days for Israel to conquer the entire Sinai Peninsula and including Gaza Strip from Egypt to conquer the Golan Heights, the strategic point up north from Syria, and to conquer the West Bank from Jordan. The West Bank, I have to say, the West Bank is what Jewish Israeli, religious Jewish Israel will call Judea and Samaria. This is the biblical land of Israel. That, you know, 80% of the entire a biblical story that happened over there in, in the West Bank. This is where, when you want to walk with your Bible and dig and do some excavation and find your ancient past, that's where you go, to the West Bank. And Israel gained that from Jordan, including 
Israel reliberate, reunite, conquered, occupied the east part of Jerusalem, including all the holy sites, the Western Wall, the Dome of the Rock, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the holiest site for Christianity. It is maybe important to note that while Israel strike first Egypt and, and, and Syria, in, in the Jordanian front, actually Jordanian striked first. They, they shot the first bullet. When they struck first Israel against Egypt and Syria, you said that was preemptive. So if they hadn't struck, they, they were waging war because the writing was on the wall that they were going to be attacked by these other countries? If you ask Israel, if you ask the Israeli narrative, for sure, Israel strike first to prevent what, it, what could maybe a great defeat. Now, we all know that, especially you, hearing the rhetoric of Egypt and Syria, there is no surrendering here. It's, it's a zero sub, like you either win or you lose it all. That, that was, that, that's the mindset. I don't know if Russia or the US would interfere, but that definitely was the mindset. You, you cannot allow yourself even one loss. So Israel, yeah, Israel strike first to prevent a second Auschwitz. That's what they say. Now, what are the resolutions of that war? Hear me out here. Israel tripled its size in six days, creating for the first time a buffer zone from Egypt, that's the Sinai Peninsula, and creating for the first time a buffer zone between Israel and Jordan, that's the West Bank. Meaning before 1967, you had nine miles between Jordan to uh, the sea, to the Mediterranean. Nine miles, you can jog it in two hours or so. Like, uh, the, the narrow waist of Israel was so narrow, the fear was that it, Jordan could attack by surprise and in one hour can cut Israel to two. Without a map, it's, it's harder to understand, but that was the main fear. So the resolutions of 1967 or the Six-Day War or the Naxa, first, Israel tripled its size. And that is the most important. It's the strategic reason that comes first. Second, a great, great euphoria. The feeling was Messiah is around, the, course, is around the, course, uh, the corner. Redemption is about to come. People are opening the Bible and they actually read, you know, the, the, the prophet, prophecies of the end of days and they can see it in front of their eyes. Not just people in Israel. We're talking about the entire Jewish world and many others that felt, wow, it's against all odds. The little young Israel won that war, tripled its size, escaped from annihilation, and, and got all the biblical end. Another resolution. Now, remember that after 1948, Israel ended with 200,000 local Arabs or Palestinians that stayed in, in the international agreed part of Israel. Now we have 100,000 Arabs more, and now I can start calling them Palestinian because by, by now, a lot of them will refer to themselves as Palestinian. Think of those poor Palestinians. Some had to leave their houses in the 30s because some Zionist Jews bought the land. Fair and square, but still, right? And then at 1948, vast majority of them had to flee or stay in, in within Israel, but see Israeli army march into the villages and, and losing everything. And now for some of them, for many of them in Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, for the third time, they see Israeli army marching in, right? This is insane. For, now, this generation will never try to pull anything off. They had two defeats in two decades. That's too much. 
But all in all, all of a sudden, the UN, the same UN that didn't demand from Israel to, to, to return the territories that uh, Israel got in 1948, even the territories that were not supposed to be Israelis in the partition plan, all of a sudden the UN say, hey, now you need to give it back. This is not yours. This is illegal occupation. The 1967 newly conquered land. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the main, and, and one of the big questions is how come the UN that in, after 1948 war, they did say to Israel, you need to, you need to solve the refugee problem and we need to do this. And, but there was, there was never a demand. All of a sudden, 1967, there is a demand from Israel to give back all the territories that Israel took in 1967. And, and the, the, the question is, what's the, what's the main difference? How come? And the answer is, if you want to guess, is it because the world viewed this as Israel being the aggressor because they fired the first shot? Yes, exactly. According to the kindergarten mentality, which is the Middle East, in 1948, Israel said yes to the partition plan. The Arabs said no. The Arab invaded Israel, defend, and got more territory, but, but winners keepers. Again, I'm being very simplistic, but all in all, winners keepers. In 1967, Israel was considered the aggressor because we shot the first shot. Doesn't matter that according to the mainstream Israeli Jewish Zionist narrative, we only gave the preemptive strike in order to prevent annihilation. But according to the world, Israel was the aggressor. Therefore, Israel needs to give back all the territories that, that Israel took. Another reason is that the UN in 1948 was such a young organization, only three years old, it didn't have the power that it had 20 years later. It, that's, that's another reason. But all of, all of a sudden, we have to return it back. All of, all of that land was considered, and still is, illegal occupation. And there is another big, big difference between 48 and 67. If you remember, in 1948, Israel immediately, almost immediately, gave citizenship to all the Palestinians that stayed in what is now considered the international agreed part of Israel, the 1948-1949 borders, all the, all the borders that Israel drew. All of a sudden, in 1967, we have hundreds of thousands Palestinian more, but this time we don't offer citizenship. Can you maybe guess what is the difference between 48 and 67? How come over there we offered and now we didn't offer? Is the Israeli government getting concerned that this is a Jewish state and that they don't want to lose a Jewish majority? Or is it still not at that point yet? Again, you are, you are totally correct. It's the demographic threat. Israel looks at almost a million Palestinian more, a few hundred thousand more and say, whoa, if we will give them citizenship, they can vote. If they can vote, they can outvote us. Uh, you know, in, in a generation or two, they can outnumber us, they can outvote us, and they can vote against Israel being a Jewish democratic state. But on the other end, if I, if I annex all that land and I don't give citizenship, I'm in a big problem. Again, you know, the world will look at it as an apartheid state because if I'm controlling a land and, and, and I don't give citizenship, you know, that's an apartheid. So Israel decided not to decide. Israel decided not to decide what to do with the Palestinian people. 
that are living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And that's the situation ever since. I, I will say, if, if, you know, I'm not talking about the Golan Heights, but Israel annexed the Golan Heights after 14 years. Therefore, the Golan Heights is considered to be part of Israel, if you talk to Israelis. But in the Golan Heights, you didn't have any Syrian left. They all fled. And only the Druze, which is a different religion and ethnic group, stayed and they, got, they were offered citizenship. But when, and, and, when, and in Jerusalem, Israel said, okay, Jerusalem is the internal capital of the Jewish nation. We, of course, we will annex Jerusalem. And then Israel did a, a trick, a very problematic one. And Israel said, okay, we will annex East Jerusalem and we will give the Palestinian in East Jerusalem, we will not give them citizenship, but we will give them residency, meaning they have the Israeli ID, they can uh, travel freely in, in Israel, they can vote for the municipality, but not for the parliament. And then if we'll see that they're loyal, after a few years, they can apply for citizenship, which of course they won't, because that's acknowledging the occupation. But up until the 90s, those Palestinians were living under military control, they were not citizens. They could apply to the Supreme Court. They could work in Israel, but it's, it's, it's still, they didn't have the rights. They're not citizens, nor are they residents. But if, if that's not enough, there is one more thing. Even the international community, even the UN understand that in case of war, a, 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 a state or a country can conquer a land and hold it for a future negotiation. That's part of the war. But the world said it loud and clear. There are two things you're not allowed to do. First, if you, if you gain land, you are not allowed to settle your civilians in that occupied land. And the other thing is, if let's say you did conquer a land and, and, and you did settle your people, which is a big no, you cannot offer two sets of law, one to your people and one to the occupied People. You cannot offer two sets of law. That's a big, big, big no. Therefore, Israel, again, didn't annex. But Israel did say one thing. Okay, with all due respect to the, to the UN, I'm going to send my people over there. And that's what we call the settlers or the, settler, the settlement movement. Those are Jews that are coming mainly to the West Bank, but also to Gaza Strip. And they settle over there. They will settle for from two main reasons. One, they actually believe that this is their land. They are, I'm talking the first waves of settlement. They were very ideologists. They were very religious. And they felt Messiah is around the corner. This is how we'll make we'll, facts in the ground. The other reason, as I mentioned, is the strategic reason. You cannot really hold a buffer zone if you don't settle your people over there. You need, you need people. So as long as the left-wing party was ruling Israel, it was very, very minor. The left-wing didn't want right-winger, religious, ideology settler to settle in within the mass-populated areas of the Palestinian. So they tried to fight it. And, and quite successfully, they tried to fight it in, in, in the first few years. They actually encouraged settlers uh, to go to the Golan Heights because those were secular left-wing settlers, but they really didn't approve right-winger religious settlers to go to the West Bank, to the Palestinian territories, and to Gaza Strip. Now, I'm stopping here only for a moment to explain right and left in Israel, unlike in Canada or in, or in, or in, in the US. At the end of the day, when we go vote, we vote for security. 
it's not about economy here and it's not about to right to have abortion there are many many things that are very that we are concerned with but at the end of the day if you believe Jews should have a homeland, but also Palestinians should have a state, that makes you a left-winger or a center-left-winger. If you're a right-winger, you can come in two main shades. Either you're a pragmatic right-winger, like our prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, said, you know what, I would go for a compromise, for a territorial compromise, not happily, but I would do it, but I don't trust the other side. I think they're bluffing. So why would I give my edge? Why would I give all that strategic advantage of the West Bank, if I don't believe that they really want peace. Or you can be a religious ideologist, right-winger, meaning you are walking with the Bible and say, this is my land, my forefather land. It was promised to me. And and so on. Say, a Palestinian can live here, but that's my land. And that illustrates a, a very critical point that a lot of people who look at this issue from afar who aren't in Israel, I think, sometimes fail to appreciate that within Israel, there is no agreement. There are many, many people who do not agree and who have not agreed over the years with policies. There's left-wing people and there's right-wing people. Oh, and, and up until the, the 1999, it was kind of a tie. Every election, you know, sometimes the right-wing took uh, the lead, sometimes the left-wing took the lead. So there is a lot of polarization here, and there is a lot of hostility here, and there is a lot of disagreement here as well. So that is the 1967. If you hear about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you will not refer to the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the ones that are living in Israel since 1948. There are are issues over there, but you will talk about the Palestinians that are living in the occupied-slash-disputed territory that was taken in 1967. So you have a couple points there before we conclude this first episode. One is that I think a misconception amongst many people is that Israel is a state of only Jewish people. And you've made it very clear, like you said there, there are a lot of Arabs who live in Israel who became part of Israel after the 1948 war and who'd already lived inside of Israel. And I think that's a really important piece for people to understand who might not, who might not know that. Now, that does not address the issue of 1967 and that does not address all the people who have not been annexed and who are living in limbo essentially in the West Bank because Israel hasn't decided what to do with them. In Israel we have roughly 75% that are Jews and like 25% something like that that are not. Most of the non-Jews are Arab Muslim or Palestinian Muslim citizens of Israel but we have like 150,000 Arab Christians and we have almost 150,000 Druze, that's a different religion. And we have some Baha'i and Kirkesians and, and many, many other, it's a mosaic it's, it's a, of, of, of ethnicities. And the last thing I want to ask you, which I think some listeners are probably questioning is, some people might find it tough to understand when I answered your question before and I said, maybe they didn't want to annex the West Bank because they didn't want to have more Muslims in Israel. And that could come across as racist. But Mm. from a Jewish perspective, what is the Jewish mentality of why it is so important to maintain a Jewish majority in Israel? So I think you're using the wrong term. It's not about Muslims. It's not about religion. It's about nationality. It's not about Jews doesn't want more Muslims in their, in their side. It's Israelis. That's why the, the, even the term Jews and Muslims is, is less relevant mm-hmm. if you're talking to the mainstream Israeli. 
It's Israelis and Palestinians. Israelis, which happen to be vast majority of Israelis are Jews by religion, but most of them will be secular. You know, they're not practicing the religion. They would refer them to themselves first of all, maybe as Israelis and only then as, as Jews. But all in all, Israelis didn't want more Palestinian in, in the land that was taken for very obvious reason. I know it's very hard to pass it to, to you know, a progressive liberal ear in Canada, but those are the people that are being in, the, in conflict with the Israeli Jews since the, at least the 1920s. Some would count from the 19th century, some would count from the 30s. But, and, and, and for sure, Israeli does not want to conquer and annex a, a, a huge number of hostile Palestinians that if they will become citizens, can change the, the, tech, the nature of the Jewish democratic uh, state of Israel. Now, Jewish and, and democratic go together. If Israel want to keep its democratic nature as a democracy, it, had, it has to keep a strong Jewish majority. Now, Israel was established from day one as a safe haven for the Jewish people. Also as a long, you know, dream of thousands of years, but as a safe haven for the Jewish people. Israel made it very clear. Israel was designed as safe haven, especially after the Holocaust, but also after all the violence that is, the Jews have suffered throughout the years. It's, it's easy. And you can just look what happened now. Many, many Jews in the last 10 years are coming from France because they are experiencing a wave of, of hostility, a wave of anti-Semitism. Um, and they've been absorbed in Israel. And you had that in, for, for Moroccan or for Arab Jews in, in, in the 40s and 50s. And you had it from, for Argentinian Jews, even though they came here in the 90s because they had an economic financial crisis. But still, or, or Russian in the, in the 90s, or Ethiopians, again, in the 90s, knowing that they have a homeland that they can go and become citizens. This is one of the main goals of Israel to begin with, it's supposed to be the only safe haven or the only Jewish country. Again, not just Jewish as a religious, it's not a religious country, but it does have Jewish symbols. You know, it has the Star of David on the flag and we, our resting day is Shabbat. We don't have public transportation and so on, but it's definitely aimed for that. And I just wanted to highlight that point because people who maybe aren't familiar with the country, I, it's easy to forget the high amount of anti-Semitism in the world and the plights that the Jewish people have had over many years. So as you said, it is a safe haven and there is a natural Jewish fear of losing that Jewish state. Yeah, yeah. But again, it comes together. You, you need to keep a strong Jewish majority in order to keep a democracy the way you look. You, of course, you have some people say, look, it's about time that we will change the entire political system and we'll find some way of Arabs and Jews together and so on. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's maybe beautiful, but it's, it's not really practical at this point, I think. It's still, we have 75% Jews and they want to keep it that way. All right. Well, Yoav, thank you very much for that first episode. You've 
given an extremely detailed history of Israel up until 1967. We're going to have you back later this week to chat about the other years since 1967 and what's transpired in the history. So thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Preconceived. Join us later this week for another episode regarding the history of Israel and Palestine. Thanks. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.